Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Entangled Urbanism Slum, Gated Community, and Shopping Mall in Delhi and Gargon by Sanjay Srivastava. The book is published by Oxford University Press, and Sanjay is a professor and head of sociology at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi. This book is a wonderfully readable piece of urban anthropology. It explores the ways in which spaces and processes are interconnected in the city, and we move from temples that resemble shopping malls through the gates of luxury apartments and into the electricity supply networks of slums. And in doing so, the book pulls together all the different threads that entangle city dwellers with one another. Really is my new favourite piece of urban anthropology. I'm absolutely obsessed with this book, and I hope you enjoy listening to me speaking with Sanjay. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Sanjay to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book, and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for the opportunity. Wonderful. Okay, so before we talk about um, your book itself, um, could you please briefly tell us a little bit about your past academic interests and how it fed into this project? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm an anthropologist, and um, my first book, uh, which was called um, Constructing Post-Colonial, Post-Colonial India, National Character and the Dune School, was about a school, a boarding school, so about three, actually three different boarding schools, where I was you know, interested in, well, not so much in classroom schooling and pedagogy as such, but the broader context within which certain kind of nationalist education developed. Um, so the, <clears throat> the key focus of my study was a school called the Dune School. Uh, uh, it was a very famous boarding school for boys. Uh, she produced lots of well-known men, uh, novelists and politicians, etc., etc. Um, and I was particularly interested in that study um, uh, on the links between uh, education, nationalism, middle class modernity, and science, um, and, 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 and also on issues of space and time, and, and how, how, how might one think about specific spaces of schooling that produce certain ideas around nationalism. And when I was writing, uh, doing that particular project, um, the city began to kind of figure quite uh, significantly in the project in terms of thinking about uh, histories of Indian nationalist imagination. Because historically, it's been about the village and the village as the essential India. But here, you know, you came across lots of images and symbols of the city. Um, the manner in which a school was organized as kind of an urban space, as a contractual space rather than a village space. Um, so the city was seen as a space, as the urban was seen as a space where India was going to move to. Um, where uh, So the school was a space where no one was supposed to know each other's caste in a similar way that the city is supposed to be contractual rather than personalized spaces. So in a sense, the city has been very significantly a part of the Indian nationalist imagination. So that first work interested me much more significantly um, in the ideas of the city. And of course, I've, I've always been interested in spaces, um, uh, uh, the spaces both in the material and symbolic aspect. Um, uh, so that was my first work. Um, and, you know, the, the Dune School, for example, when it was established, was established from the premises of what was earlier 
uh, a laboratory um, uh, um, where, um, or, or a botanical garden where, which was like a garden of science. Uh, so there were very deliberate symbolic efforts to locate a nationalist school which was established in 1935 around, around ideas of urban modernity and science. So that was my first uh, work, um, which, uh, which interested, in me, uh, about, uh, interested me about how we think about urban spaces as part of larger processes of modernity and, and science and nationalism in the non-Western world. Um, my second monograph, which was um, called Passionate Modernity, Sexuality, Class and Consumption in India, uh, was actually much more explicitly about the city, but the sexual cultures of the city, intimacy, um, ideas of pornography and how, how they circulate within the city and how they are built around ideas of the urban. So I carried out fieldwork at what in India, I'm sure some, some of you, some of your listeners and you might know, are called sex clinics where men go to working class men uh, for so-called uh, sex problems, but also how to have a male child. So I was interested here in this particular context, and again, um, about the various processes of the city, lives of poor migrant men in the city, transit, transit points such as bus stations and train stations, where knowledges about cities circulate, um, consumer cultures in the urban environment, the sexual geography of the city. And since then, I've also kind of written various journal articles and book chapters about the different aspects of the urban. And I've, and I've also made a documentary film about an urban village in Delhi. Um, urban villages are these kind of, you know, Delhi, of course, as you, know, as you might know, consists of, was built over a number of villages. And some of these villages remained even after New Delhi was built. And they got surrounded by the, by the city that is currently Delhi. So I, we made a film on, um, I have also made a film on, urban villages. So I've had a long interest, long-standing interest in urban issues, and some of my past work kind of feeds into uh, the current project, this, this book, Entangled Urbanism, that um, we're talking about. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, that, that brings us nicely to talk about Entangled Urbanism, and as the, as the subtitle of your, of your book suggests, it's about slums or, or, or settlements, about gated communities, and also about shop, shopping malls, both in Delhi and Gaugan and and we're going to talk about each of these three spaces um, in our conversation. But I thought before we do turn to speak about these spaces, could you please tell us a little bit about a couple of the guiding ideas that you that you bring up in this introduction? So of, of the books, firstly, you have this wonderful idea in the beginning when you say the city is like an argument and also the title of the book itself, Entangled Urbanism. So could you unpack those two concepts for us a little? Um, well, I've been... I mean, I'm interested in spaces, of course, and I'm influenced um, a great deal by um, urban geographers um, who you know, much more specifically address the issue of space as social, as both object and also a process. But I'm also interested in biographies and um, as a method within social anthropology and sociology and social science. Um, in the sense of what do people's lives tell us about the structures within which we all live, structures of power, about structures of emotions, um, about the ways in which we deal with the world. Um, so um, one of the ideas uh, um, uh, why I began with an epigraph about the cities like an argument is, of course, all cities are contested spaces of different kinds. Um, so here the contest in Delhi and other such cities around the world would be uh, between different kinds of uh, uh, people, uh, so-called well-off, the not-so-well-off. So people live in slums, people live in gated communities and different processes that this 
this this leads uh, this uh, this rise to the other um, at least for me a significant idea behind the book is not to think of a city as having an essence you know so we have like tourist brochures where paris is about love for example um, and i and, and other cities have their own kind of uh, promotional uh, spiels about what they are developed historically in certain ways um and i reading the work of you know anthropologists and human geographers you always have a sense about uh, uh the fact that the city is a far more complex place than a simply about that that something that can be captured through one particular descriptor um so entangled urbanism the book is about the ways in which cities uh you know should be seen as produced through a series of relationship between different kinds of populations and certain non western cities have extraordinarily varied populations um rather than rather than being seen as autonomous rather than being seen as consisting of autonomous realms you know the gated community and a shopping mall and a slum and a better off locality that have nothing to do with each other um so i wanted to look at um uh, a city uh, cities as inter, as a series of interlocking processes because um my familiarity with and the stuff that i've learned from other other others who written about it is to um cities as so being about um elite localities or about slums um so uh, but i i was interested in looking at um having read in you know, a wide range of stuff um which um which is about specific spaces of the cities i was really interested in looking how these spaces are interlinked um what is it uh to think about how middle class activism to remove certain so called dirty spaces in a place like delhi what does it mean um, in terms of how it impacts upon other people's lives so that is the kind of entanglement that i was in, that i was interested in um so in a sense that of course i'm um, there's been, i mean one is of course you know like most anthropologists and stuff while we study poor people and rich people have very little there's very little whilst we may have certain political positions we are we you also feel feel kind of helpless about the state of the world so one aspect of trying to think about the city as a series of entangled spaces also to see this project as a kind of a kind of a political and ethical project about saying well how does one kind of activity affect another and someone else's life um so whilst on the one hand i see it as a kind of a intervention which is also political in the way we think about the social now the socials organize about how you know uh, how if uh, one kind of action in one part of the city affects another someone else's life it it is that but it's also an intellectual and methodological experiment about thinking about um, um rather than thinking of the city as a series of splintered spaces which is of course the other another another paradigm um i'm trying to think about the city especially the non western city as a series of entanglements um which then allows me to say that i as a as a resident of a specific kind of city the kinds of actions that i take as a relatively privileged person um obviously has effect upon someone else's life so it's both an ethical project but also i think um uh, an, an an intellectual and methodological experiment um so you know as you know the city is about malls and highways and theme parks and slums and bureaucracies and um so i'm really interested in saying 
how one imagines the city as a series of effects upon uh, 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 that that one particular kind of action uh, has upon uh, 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 upon another space. So that's what I meant by uh, entangled urbanism. Um, I guess I could have just done a book um, just on gated communities, um, but then the manner in which a gated community comes about the manner in which clean spaces so called clean spaces in a city like delhi are created the manner in which a global city is sought to be created uh, means also the removal of other kinds of spaces and other kinds of people from those spaces so that's what i meant by um, entangled urbanism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it and it comes through really well as you read a book and this is one of the joys i get of reading a, a book length um, piece of work is that you this entanglement really is there as you move from through the spaces but exactly uh, Guided, guided by yourself as the anthropologist, and and really you keep getting reminded of the of the previous people that we met uh, earlier on in the book. So really, this really works really well, and it's a really enjoyable read. But now let's talk about the the first section, which is called uh, spaces of the periphery, subjects of the center. And this is a this is, I suppose a really rich and at times actually also terribly sad account of an informal settlement uh, in Delhi, which is called uh, Nangla. And um, there's three chapters in this section. And I think one of the, the common themes that kept coming up for me when I was reading it, and it, I think at the end of the second chapter here it really explicitly uh, comes out, is that there's a search for permanence amongst many of these residents. So I was wondering, could you tell us why, why you think that permanence was so important for these residents and, and what, what the role the state played in bringing about or, or, or stopping this permanence? Well, I think, you know, like, you know, most... Um, Cities like Delhi around the world, within Africa and stuff, are and most uh, country, uh, countries around the world, you know, in the Northwestern context. Um, one of the most significant uh, uh, of the so- uh, social life of such societies is mobility. You have large numbers of people who are moving from village to a larger village, to a smallish town, to a larger town, and eventually, hopefully, to a metropolitan uh, town. So, so so intra um, country uh, uh, the intra country diaspora is massive right um, so uh, people move in search of jobs people move because they get displaced because the dams get built or whatever but i think primarily also you know people move in search of jobs now despite the fact that all these societies are marked by such extraordinary mobility um, the most significant way in which you can, you can access your rights actually built about built around providing a proof of permanence right you need if you want in india for example ID, uh, government id cards that allow you to access cheap food uh, the so called ration card and now, now they're called below poverty line cards for example you need proof of residence um, which for large numbers of people are really difficult to 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 provide because they've been they spent half their life moving from one place to another uh, to 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 to, um, to to earn a livelihood, and that's certainly the, the kinds of people that I was working with in this part of the book. Um, and so, the desire for the proof of residence um, is 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 um, is a desire which allows you to, um, uh, which is built, which is because of the fact that it allows you access to different kinds of subsidized food or hospital or schooling facilities. Um, so, this is the kind of so the search for permanence, a permanent address in a context we are constantly having to move on, is really a search for um, a, a livelihood, an access to resources. Um, 
and that's why permanence is 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 so significant. Um, the search for permanence is such a significant aspect for people's life. It's not only to have a foothold, a place where you live, but it's also an access to um, uh, 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 goods uh, for, for for survival, right? And it's a search of permanence in a society, and societies where there's such huge, large-scale mobility. So how do you get um, permanence? So you you try. Getting uh, proof of permanence through, you know, maybe ID cards, and you can't get a genuine ID card because you can't provide a proof of permanence. So you um, you you get people to give you get you a fake ID card, and in the in the hope that that fake ID card at some point in time will get you a genuine ID card. So the relationship between fakeness, uh, genuineness, is a very complex one, um, and that's what I was interested in um, in terms of exploring the city as. A site for poor people uh, to search for this this permanence, um, and the and the state is of course an overwhelming factor in people's lives. Although we now have theories of neoliberalism which suggest that um, increasingly people are moving into <clears throat> sort of private worlds and entrepreneurship in countries like India and in many other countries like in other parts of the non-Western world, the state continues to be the most significant actor in the lives of poor people. Um, and in fact, you know, if you speak to poor people in India, certainly are relatively poor people, um, it is not that they what they most desire is private sector jobs. In fact, what they most desire is actually government jobs. So, in this part of the book, I really I was interested in both um, ethnographies of the state. How do people on an everyday basis deal with the state, and how does the state deal with them? What is the state? Uh, so, you know, people trust the state. But the trust is not reciprocated um, uh, because the state itself is not any kind of neutral thing, as we know from the studies of various various recent studies. It's made up of the different kinds of people who who make up the state. I mean, so the you know the, there's that other theory of the state which always saw the Weberian theory of the state, which saw the state as this fixed thing, neutral, above above society. Whereas in everyday life, of course, it is fickle. It has peculiar relations with poor people. And poor people have peculiar peculiar relations with the state. Um, so the state is that everyday thing which people really desire, but that love is not reciprocated. And that's why that part of the book is really about um, kind of the everyday state and how people deal with it, and people and different kind of strategies that people have to deal with the state, because the state that they see, in fact, in the Nangla, the slum that was demolished that I talked about. The state was a kind of a drunk official who would come every second day to do a survey or the other. He became a part of the lo locality that slum called Nangla, so that there were over blurred boundaries between the people in the state, which 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 makes for very difficult um, dealings for the state because you, 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 because although we imagined the state to be this formal mechanism where you know where you stand, it has rules and regulations. In its everyday incarnations, it's a very fickle thing. Um, and it's that fickleness that I was interested in exploring, and what are the strategies that people have in order to deal with the fickleness? If the state is fickle, well, I think one of the things that people do did at Nangla is to employ just as kind of fickle strategies to deal with it. Um, the kind of um, uh, uh, magical strategies that, for example, others have described. People like Michael Tausig have, uh, have talked about. Uh, uh, so, and I think that city is uh, that 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 part of the book is really kind of ethno ethnographies of the state through looking at everyday interactions that people have with the state, um, and rather than have a moral position on faking and uh, getting fake documents, uh, that part of the book is really about 
what happens in a city so that people try and get gain the maximum they can out of a state um in a deeply asymmetrical society in a very deeply divided city and that's what really that section is about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful idea. I think it's in the third chapter when you say the state has a certain mood and how how people have to read the, the mood of the state as if as if the state was a you know a person in good mood or in a bad mood and so on. But let's uh, let's move on to the second section, uh, which is which is quite a different space. But as you as you mentioned earlier, it's a a space that's also entangled with the slum, and that's the the gated community. And um, you have a discussion about various middle class residents' lives and. and you suggest that you, their practices can in some way be framed as something which is post national so i was wondering could you explain what you mean by this and how it plays out in the city uh yeah okay i'll, let, I'll just begin by saying what i don't mean by post national because it is a term that we use <laughs> in other contexts as well mm-hmm. uh, so i don't mean by post national that the nation state is insignificant because that was something that was in the from mid 90s there was this um, argument around um that there are these post national social formations such as ngos um and that the that the nation state is now insignificant i'm increasingly in that position has now been kind of revised to say that the nation state is not insignificant it you know it, it, it revises that the state certainly appears in different incarnations um even with the rise of globalization so that's not what i mean by post national i also don't mean by post national um a kind of a critique of the nation state and that's the other thing that, that we should be post national in order to um suspend the idea of the nation state and think of that that, that it's a this or not this is not a theoretical political horizon that we are i'm not using post national as a theoretical political horizon um to think beyond the nation state um i'm thinking of i'm i'm deploying post nationalism here in a very almost like a descriptive term um hopefully it's not empiricist Mm-hmm. but it, but what i mean by it is um how contemporary nationalist ideas and emotions are entangled with the new practices of consumerism and the, and their associated cultures of privatization and individuation so how does the national emotion continue to be a significant aspect of everyday life and practice um but is expressed through the newer entanglements with cultures of consumerism which are also about cultures of of privatization and individuation so ideas of the new individual um so uh, so specifically for example how do ideas of public private partnership play out um both in terms of commercial activity but also newer notions of the nation state and how the nations how the new nation state ought to be organized what ought to be its relationship with the private sector and citizenship um how for example india you know there's been rise of um uh, uh, of uh, activity by what are what in india referred to as the resident welfare associations which are akin to like neighborhood associations in the us i i guess so rwas resident welfare association in india are primarily middle class middle class associations there's, a, there's been a rise of middle class activism through rwa politics which i think is part of a post national um, uh, environment whereby at an earlier point in indian history um the nationalism was of course a middle class activity but it was by middle class people but on behalf of the poor i think the post national moment is that moment where a great deal of middle class activism is increasingly conducted on behalf of what are seen as middle class interests and also the rise of the citizen um 
consumer. So what I mean by post-nationalism is a reconfiguration of the relationship between, say, the state and, and middle-class people, um, uh, and a redefinition of the relationship and reconfiguration relationship also between the state and the corporate sector, which is actually a massive move because historically the Indian state was seen as a de de uh, developmentalist state, right? Uh, someone, a state that was primarily acting on behalf of the poor. Increasingly, the state is seen as um, a state that is a friend of the middle classes. Um, so in Indian popular culture, for example, now the hero of Bollywood cinema is not the person who saves on behalf of the nation state. Right? In the 50s and 60s, it was the dam builder, the scientist, the, the doctor, the person who was not a conspicuous consumer who was a national hero. From the 1990s onwards, Indian popular culture, the national hero is the consumer. Right? The, the man who is global, the man who is, um, who, 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 who is transnational, who is a consumer, because it's consumption that links the nation state to the world. I think that's the big shift. That's what I'm thinking of when I, think, when I use the term um, uh, the post-national period. So the nationalism continues to be significant, but it is increasingly entangled with uh, global cultures, consumerism, and in different kinds of realms, whether it's public-private uh, partnerships and road building or electricity distribution, privatization um, in, in, of infrastructure, um, that in different realms uh, um, you have a very different idea of the nation-state, a different idea of individuation. So that's what I meant by the post-national, um, uh, because I am also, you know, also I'm, I'm deeply interested in how consumer cultures reorganize our lives beyond uh, just buying goods, what do they actually mean uh, uh, to us as, as, as different kinds of people. Uh, and that's, that's where my, my, my interest is, is located in terms of thinking about the city, thinking about um, uh, culture and social change that's happening. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, if, I, if I may, I just ask one more question on this section, more of a, a methodological question, because I think one of the reasons why at least um, in urban studies or in South Asia, we, we know quite a little, we know very little actually about the, the super rich because they're exactly because they're behind, they're behind gates, they're, they're hard to reach. I was wondering, how did you go about finding these people? I mean, how, how did you go about as an anthropologist doing the research? I'm sorry, could you, could you repeat that question? It's sure. a bit. Okay, I'm just saying like methodologically, how did you get to meet um, the, the rich ah. in the gated communities? How did you go about? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really interesting question, and it's a question that anthropologists don't often ask each other. Yes. <laughs> um, because, I mean, we assume that, you know, you just go into the field and you start doing your stuff. Um, well, you know, like, it's an interesting question in this particular context, um, because clearly you have to have access to people who otherwise would not give. It's not like working in a village, right? You go to a village and you set up shop. And, and, and in a sense, the anthropologist who goes to a village is in a sort of a relatively powerful position and you can ask questions and you can ask people to come and visit you and people will. Right? But this is a, this, um, the gated community kind of work is with people who really have, to whom you are the supplicant. I mean, they don't really have any, they have nothing to gain from you. Don't particularly, and they are usually much more powerful and richer than, than you are. So it has to be through a series of contacts. I mean, it's just, it look, it's, it's classic middle class fieldwork. I mean, I think that this kind of fieldwork 
this particular kind of field work, and it's a really good question because it's a very difficult question, it's a fraught question to answer. It is a question. It is the kind of field work that you do if you have access to access to a certain kind of people because you may have because they think that that because they think that you're like them. You yes. get access to certain kinds of people. Um, you may have access to certain kinds of people because um, you may have been to similar schools or colleges or universities and have or meet other kinds of forums. Um, so you get access to that world because. You go along with the idea that they think that, after all, you are one of them. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's, but I think it's something that anthropologists don't discuss often enough. Um, increasingly, it is something that we should be talking about because anthropological fieldwork is now of a different kind. People don't only work in villages. So the question of how you get access to this other kind of world of power and the well-off and the elite is an important question. Um, it's, it's, it's a question of method. It's a question of um, how certain kinds of anthropologies also an anthropologist is done under uh, a series of uh, through pretense and through not disclosing certain kinds of things, um, which has always been a way that we produce knowledge in any case. But I think it's become much more a question that we need to address much more significantly um, because the manner in which we produce knowledge is um is that a is 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 um stands in a sense exposed because we don't all of us no longer work in villages you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, and so the simplest answer would be to your question um is that you i guess you dissimulate in some ways you, you you go through people that you know um you let people assume that there is a shared world between the anthropologist and the people that he or she is talking to Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, I mean, this kind of work, you know, anthropology that works with the rich and the powerful um, is a very, it's a much more difficult thing to do because there's no reason why, there's no particular reason why that group of people would give you access to their world. I mean, you're the supplicant and you just have to, uh, unlike the other kind of um, uh, anthropology, where you're not the supplicant, you're very much in a powerful position. Mm-hmm. So these different kinds of strategies become important when you do uh, when you do uh, uh, you know, fieldwork. That what what's the term? The fieldwork that you looking up kind of fieldwork rather than looking yes. down kind of fieldwork. Yes, so, yes. As, a, yeah. as opposed to in the first part of the book, where you were considered sometimes to be a government agent or or someone like this when you yes. when you were around the around the slum. Okay, let's let's talk about now about the the final um, section of the book, and this again is is centered on, on consumption, or maybe more directly centered on consumption in this section. Um, but not just amongst the rich of the city, but also in the final chapter, you you talk about in villages at the periphery, and also about temple goers as well, who are this sort of in between middle class uh, category that you discussed. So I was wondering, could you please tell us how and why consumption plays such an important role in uh, building the contemporary urban imagination? Uh, okay. The, well, the final bit um, is uh, well. Uh, it's, it's about one chapter is about um, uh, 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 a, theme, a religious theme part. Mm-hmm. Another one is uh, shopping mall. And uh, another one is about this pyramid selling scheme, uh, which, which tells, which is, which is, um, uh, which has great um, deal of patronage from uh, uh, from from the poor. Uh, um, I, again, you know, I'm 
the, the reason why that bit interests me is 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 to um, look at again the relationship. I think consumerism is in is a is a very significant theme in the book. Um, so um, the, the 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 bit the chapter on the um, on the um, uh, the religious theme part um, is 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 a chapter that uh, I, I I was particularly interested in how um, long-standing belief systems are being reformulated within the urban context. How what happens to religion when it comes to the city? Um, what happens to how how do people in an urban environment which is meant to be largely um, uh, not a religious, but certainly um, secular in that sense of um, having a distance from the from from religion. Um, how, how, how what is urban religiosity about? Um, how does it express itself? How is it connected, as also much more significantly, to the non-religious realm, which is the state? So I explored in that particular chapter, which is on this very famous, now very famous, um, theme park in Delhi. Uh, which is the Akshadham Temple, which is on the banks of the Yamuna, how um, Yamuna River, how that space was uh, constructed um, through a relationship that the sect, Hindu sect, that constructed that huge temple complex uh, through the relationship they had with the state. So it's not that the state is distant um, um, from re- from religion. Uh, the land was got very cheaply because the government of the day uh, was inclined to give the land to the particular particular religious sect. Uh, at, at a throwaway price, um, it ensured that um, that the temple got built. The temple itself is um, built along the themes of um, after the you know the, the people who run this particular sect. Some of their um, the the uh, the members visited Disneyland. They visited Universal Studios, uh, and they built a temple along the lines of Disneyland Universal Studios. Um, and part of the you know. Part of the object, part of the idea behind the temple is to reinterpret Indian nation along very specific lines of uh, Hindu uh, nation, a certain kind of right-wing Hinduism. So I'm, I was interested really in exploring the some of the uh, um, the city here not as a universal, so unilineal space where you move from being less religious to uh, sorry, more religious to less religious. Uh, but the manner in which, uh, again, there's an entanglement between the past and the present, and the past is very much a part of the contemporary cities, certainly in a city like Delhi, where um, the, the past in terms of religion here is um, collapses into a futuristic vision of religiosity, um, which is built around um, you know, an IMAX theater, um, uh, a kind of a boat ride through 10,000 years of, Indi- of Indian history. So I was really interested in how time and space are uh, entangled in ways which are not unilinear, but are kind of collapsed in one particular space. So the ancient past can be so easily represented through technologies of the future. Um, and that is also the way in which cities like Delhi are increasingly being, increasingly being reimagined. And people are not, so that urban space is not simply space that is very distant from the past, right? It's not some... It's not a unilineal development of space. So I'm really interested in that particular chapter in looking at the relationship between the past and the present as they are spatialized uh, in the city through this particular uh, 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 religious theme park. Um, and then the next chapter, which is about shopping malls, you know, it, it, it kind of flows on from uh, that way, of, uh, uh, that uh, Disney temple, if I could put it that way, chapter, in as much as 
you have now different kinds of spaces which are linked to each other. So the shopping mall chapter is really a space that is linked to the earlier temple space because I think increasingly we do have the production of religious spaces which are not very different from shopping mall spaces. Um, and in fact, many, and I remember talking to a group of women who, when I asked them, they'd visited a shopping mall. One of them said, oh, I've been to Akshadham Temple. And because for <laughs> a minute, she actually did think that that was like a shopping mall. Um, so, uh, and, 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 and that final chapter, which is about um, uh, consumerism, the urban fear, which is uh, urban poor, which is about the pyramid selling uh, scheme, again, uh, tries to think about the manner in which consumer cultures define, influence the life, not only of the, of the well-off, but of the poor, and the kinds of hopes and aspirations that people build into consumer culture as something that offers them a different kind of future, but doesn't always deliver. But that's, that is the point behind consumer culture. It offers you a certain hopes uh, about future, uh, but doesn't often deliver. But it keep offering, keep offering you that hope. Um, so both the rich and the poor in a city like Delhi are deeply entangled in process of consumerism. Um, and in fact, that company that I looked at is a, uh, that the final chapter, which is in the pyramid selling scheme, where lots of poor people in Nangla, in Nangla the slum that I explore earlier on in the book I involved in, um, is the company is called Revolution Forever, right? So it, 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 it puts forward the idea that consumerism can um, can bring about a revolution in your life. And people go about buying these kind of goods from that company, um, uh, enrolling more and more people down the line um, in order to, um, to, to generate more and more income. It's a pyramid selling scheme. But of course, the problem with all pyramid selling schemes is that um, you have endless hopes um, which are almost never fulfilled. So for me, that particular section is um, something that, um, that is important uh, because it links both the rich and the poor. Um, it links the state and those realms which we think of as non-states, such as religion. Um, and in, 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 and, and it, it, uh, it allows me to explore the city as, um, as those series of entanglements that I've been sort of talking about um, throughout the book. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I... Really enjoyed the book. Um, so thanks a lot for Thank this uh, conversation uh, about it. And uh, so I was wondering, now that this book is out, what are your current and future projects? Um, well, I continue to work on another project, an urbanism, project in urbanism. I'm looking at, um, well, I'm sort of, I'm go gone back to Gurgaon, looking at how specific spaces that are being uh, created through a series of collaborations between middle-class citizens, uh, bureaucracies. For example, one particular project that I'm looking at is um, uh, uh, there is uh, every Sunday in Gurgaon, this new city that I talk about in this particular mm -hmm. book on the borders of Delhi, any, every Sunday they have something called a rahagiri, which means streetness or taking over the street, which is, um, comes from a, 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 an idea which I think it began in, begins in Colombia. There's something called uh, cyclovia, where people every one day of the week uh, the streets are shut off and you have oh, no cars, only sort of cycles and people bike mm -hmm. uh, on, on bicycles. And this is also uh, something that's been started in Gurgaon some years ago, um, where on Sunday morning for four or five hours, so-called citizens take over the street. There's no traffic and people walk around and you can, you can get free bicycles and you, know, you kind of uh, 
you, you, you bicycle around. Um, so it's the idea of people taking over the streets. But I'm really interested, I mean, I've been looking at it ethnographically, about how this notion of the streets and public spaces is really has been something that's been produced through a collaboration between middle-class citizens, um, uh, the, uh, the real estate developers who are interested in producing the notion of a community so that they can further market uh, the other uh, localities that they are producing in Gurgaon, uh, and, and the media, for example. So the media also sponsors this particular Ragiri movement um, because um, you know, there are, Gurgaon is a growing area, there are newspapers, there are television channels that also are, um, it's a very important marketing area. So um, that's another thing, that project that I'm working on, looking at creation of spaces um, through these kind of collaborations that are happening. And I'm also working on a project on new labor, which is um, the government of India has this huge skills development program. So I've been doing some field work in um, a so-called Maoist affected areas. The government of India wants to um, uh, train people in these so-called Maoist affected areas to become, I guess, in effect, like mall workers. So I'm interested in new ideas of work. And what does, how do you convert, what is the idea of work uh, uh, in a context in um, working in the state of Jharkhand, um, which, is, which has you know, very strong Maoist movement. So how, do you, how does one imagine work um, in a context where, has, where um, the most significant experience for young people has been Maoist, activ Maoist uh, activity, left-wing, extreme left-wing left -wing activity. So this project is really about kind of... Um, um, the whole notion of turning potential Maoists into mall workers. Um, what does skill mean um, in, in, in the context of um, consumer culture as a global economy? Because the government of, government of India is putting in vast amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, certainly. Um, uh, um, so I'm interested in the social and cultural dimensions of um, work, the meaning of work. Um, and, you know, this kind of work, of course, has been done for the... I don't know, you might remember the, in the U.S. There was, a, there was a project that was done with um, uh, De Delta Airlines. Uh, it was a, a book called The Managed Heart, uh, which looks at emotional labor. So in this particular context, I'm really interested in new, new labor, also notions of emotional labor, but um, in, in, in a very different context than the U.S. Um, and also trying to think about what neoliberalism actually means. Um, uh, what is it? that how does it actually come to, 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 to localize itself in very, very poor context? Um, what, what is the social meaning and cultural meaning of social exclusion? Uh, how do people, what do people, poor people from really poor backgrounds, how do they reimagine themselves, try and reinvent themselves if they have to go and work in a shopping mall? And part of that work is also has been done at an air hostess training academy where you get lots of uh, kids from small towns and villages who who, uh, who want to be cabin crew. And what are the skills they have to learn? What does it mean to try and reinvent yourself in a 12-month period when you have, say, 18 years of your life spent in a very different social and cultural environment? So these are some of the things that I've been working on. Wow, wonderful. They both sound like, um, yeah, they all sound like really wonderful projects. So we look forward to reading about those into the in the future. Um, okay, there's not much more for me to do apart from to thank you again for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about these, uh, these projects and the book. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Entangled Urbanism by Sanjay Sri Vastava. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoy reading the book and speaking with Sanjay, and I hope you download again next time. Ta-ra!